Hello, fellow kids, and welcome back to What is Politics, and to our critique of Greyburn Wengrow's new book, The Dawn of Everything. Today, in this third installment of our critique, we'll be circuitously covering chapter one from the book, which is called Farewell to Humanity's Childhood, or Why This is Not a Book About the Origins of Inequality. Before I dig in, I want to outline where I'm coming from and why I'm spending so much time and energy criticizing this particular book. I don't destroy my income spending insane amounts of time making podcasts about political theory because I like blathering on about abstractions, and I like not having any money. I do it because in politics, like in any field, bad political theory leads to bad political instincts, which means doomed political actions. If you're a doctor and you don't understand how germs work or how the human body works, you'll treat illnesses with leeches and mercury and hysterectomies, and you will harm your patients instead of helping them. And if you're a human being engaging in political action, and you don't understand how human beings work, you're going to build social movements that hamper your objectives instead of advancing them. You're going to write laws that can't be enforced, or that produce the opposite effect to what you're trying to achieve. You're going to be easily seduced by bad ideas, and by people who don't share your interests, and by charismatic idiots and charlatans who don't really have any ideas. And, if your goal is to change the world in major ways, you're going to end up making revolutions that fail, or else that succeed, but then end up replicating the same types of hierarchies to the ones that you're trying to overcome in the first place. Now, in a society with a hierarchical power structure, where some people have power and freedom at the expense of other people's power and freedom, be it capitalism, the Soviet Union, medieval Europe, or ancient Babylonia, one would always expect that the political theories and concepts coming out of the main institutions in these societies will be confused and convoluted, particularly when it comes to understanding the most basic features of these societies, how power is structured, how power works. For example, if you took a course on Marxism at one of the top Soviet universities in the 1970s, you were going to be taking one of the most boring, mind-numbing classes imaginable. And that's because if Marx's work had been taught in a straightforward and easy-to-understand manner, students would immediately recognize that the ruling party needed to be overthrown and that the workers should take power directly. And it's the exact same reason that Christianity gets such mangled interpretations in the medieval Catholic Church, which Jesus probably would not have been a big fan of. Today, in the rich industrialized countries, we have a political culture where none of the basic terms of our political vocabulary have any consensus definitions. So terms like left and right, the market, socialism, capitalism, these mean something different to each person who uses them. And we just kind of feel what they mean. People with poli-sci PhDs write entire books about these topics without defining them or even really knowing what they're talking about. Terms like politics and government are routinely used in ways that obscure power by hiding the fact that politics and government exist in the private sphere, not just in the public state sphere. So people think that they love democracy and they hate top-down government. But they don't notice that when we go to work, we're spending most of our waking hours subjected to a top-down government where the dictator is the owner, with only our bargaining power and the state as a check on the owner's power. And then we have all of these stupefying ideologies, ideologies that make us stupid, these myths that obscure the nature of power. Take contracts, for example. Contracts are supposed to be the foundation of our economic system, and the ideology of contracts is all based on this total falsehood that you will learn in every single law school, that contracts represent the will of the parties who sign the contract. Therefore, every contract is a win-win situation, but in the real world, your will is only expressed to the extent that you have bargaining power. 
Like if you've ever paid way more in rent than you can afford because the market is a nightmare and you have no other choice, you know that your lease contract reflects 95% of your landlord's wishes and about 5% of your wishes. And much of that 5% is actually only there because of the law. For example, your landlord's obligation to keep the place in livable order is only there because the law makes it an implicit part of every contract, although getting that enforced is another thing. All of this bad theory doesn't just confuse or pacify people who accept dominant ideologies and ideas. It also clogs up the minds of those of us who reject them with disastrous consequences. One of the most spectacular examples of this is the English Peasants' Revolt of 1381, which I talked about in episode 8. After the Black Plague killed off half of the population of England, the peasant class suddenly had much more bargaining power than they had had before. And over the course of the next 40 years, the peasants and local priests who understood that their position had changed, proselytized and organized and clashed with the nobility and state authorities, leading up to the astonishing events of 1381, when an army of 100,000 organized peasants basically overthrew the nobility. And then the peasant army marched up to the castle of King Richard II, but instead of chucking him into the river and declaring the Republic of Libertarian Socialist Christian Communes that they'd been dreaming of for the previous 40 years, which they could have easily done because his troops were away fighting some foolish war in France, instead, they shook his greasy 14-year-old pubescent hand and they cheered him when he signed charters agreeing to abolish the nobility and all of their other demands. And then they went home with big smiles on their faces, only to get slaughtered in their beds by the king's troops when they came back from France, which anyone who understood feudalism would have predicted. The peasants, as intelligent and well-organized as they were, did not understand the structure of their political system. They did not understand that the king's material interests were such that he would almost certainly side with the nobility against the peasants. Despite having rejected much of the ideologies of their day, and having built up their own egalitarian vision of Christianity, they still believed in one of the most pernicious political mythologies of the Middle Ages, that the king was a divinely appointed monarch who cared about his people. Another more recent example of a situation where you had mass organization, bolstered by favorable conditions, all wasted by bad theory, is Occupy Wall Street, which just had its 10th anniversary. And of course, I'm bringing up Occupy because one of the big intellectual lights behind Occupy's spectacular successes and its mindless failure was none other than David Graeber himself, co-author of The Dawn of Everything. So on one hand, Occupy was an incredible success. It mobilized an unheard of number of people for weeks on end, camping out in over 2,200 parks in over 1,300 cities and towns across the world. Its slogan, We Are the 99%, which was Graeber's idea, reintroduced class conflict into mainstream political discourse for the first time in 70 years. In its aftermath, it inspired a reinvigorated socialist movement that had become more or less dead even before the fall of the Soviet Union in 1989. Occupy articulated an explicit rebuke to finance capitalism, as well as an explicit rejection of corrupt representative democracy and authoritarian socialism. And instead, it espoused and adopted deep democratic decision-making forms inspired by the historical libertarian socialist slash anarchist movements. Polls show that Occupy had the support of the overwhelming majority of the people in most of the countries where they mobilized, which is something unheard of for a movement with such a radical message and ideology. And authorities were secretly afraid of them. It received very little media attention at the time, but the Obama administration shelved some pro-Wall Street lizard reforms that they were going to implement for fear of incurring the wrath of the occupiers and their admirers. And just the fact that they were able to illegally occupy so many parks for so long in violation of the law shows that in the right circumstances, organized people can be stronger than the state despite all of its police and nukes and tanks. All of this success was a huge surprise to even the organizers. 
and once it got going, many Occupy participants with roots in working-class organizing wanted to take advantage of what they understood was going to be a short window of leverage that they'd have before the whole thing would get shut down in order to put forth one overwhelmingly popular demand. This was seen as something that would generate a win-win situation. If the government would actually buckle and make concessions, this would embolden the movement and set a precedent. Like, imagine that every time the government did something that an overwhelming number of people opposed, or they didn't do something that an overwhelming majority of people wanted, that people would just rush out to occupy everything until the government buckled, and then people got what they demanded, or at least some concession towards it. And if the demands got rejected, well then the whole world would see that our political systems are so corrupt and undemocratic that even when 99% of the population wants something, our supposed representatives do nothing except send the police to come in and beat us up, which would lead to more radicalism and a higher level of general consciousness. And some of the demands that they were considering were things like ending corporate personhood, implementing a universal jobs program, and getting money out of politics, which I think would have been the winner, as it had, and still has, upwards of 90% support even among self-described conservatives in the United States. But the people who initially organized Occupy Wall Street were largely upper-middle-class kids coming out of expensive universities. And coming from comfortable backgrounds on the whole, they were more interested in their theories and identities than in actually achieving anything. Like they thought that making demands of the government would somehow taint their movement and legitimize the authority of the state. Which is like, imagine if someone is invading your apartment, and instead of demanding that they drop your things and get the hell out or else you're going to go club them with a bat, you pretend that they're not there and you have a jerk-off festival with your roommates. Making demands is exercising your power. But to the initial Occupy organizers, it was seen as quite the opposite. They saw making demands as somehow giving up their power. To quote Graeber, who at the time was one of the big proponents of the no-demands ideology, I think that the problem of asking for demands is that, who are you demanding them of? You're in a sense saying to the people in power, we would like you to do things differently. Do something for us. Save the whales. But who's going to save the whales? I'm not going to save the whales. I guess they're going to go out and save the whales. But ultimately, the idea of protest is you're saying, you people in power are doing this wrong, and we want you to do something. And even if that something is step aside, you're addressing them directly. Oh no, addressing them directly. That causes anarcho-cooties. Now, the issue, of course, wasn't saving the whales. It was bailing out homeowners instead of banks. It was re-regulating the finance industry so that they can't rob the country. It was enforcing the actual existing laws so that these people wouldn't be incentivized to do this all over again. And it was running the economy in the interest of the population, not the lizard class. And if Graeber had listed those actual issues in that interview instead of saying, save the whales, then we would see right away how absurd his proposition was. If you're not in a position to do the types of things that the state currently does, like if you're not in a position to start regulating finance and redistributing money from banks to humans, then the only way you're going to make the things that you want happen is by putting pressure on the people who do have that power to make those things happen and forcing them to obey you instead of their big moneyed circus trainers. And this is true whether you think the state is a legitimate institution or whether you think the state should ultimately be abolished. Like I said in an earlier episode, Graeber is kind of like the Ernie of politics from Ernie and Bert. Lots of great ideas, lots of charisma, a good heart, loved cookies, but a total chaotic mess who needs Bert to clean up after him. And that's the role that I'll be playing in this series. Something that seems to have been erased from the recent celebratory retrospectives on Occupy is the fact that the pro-demands organizers sometimes had huge majorities in the Occupy assemblies. So in order to keep their control over the movement, the anti-demands people pulled all kinds of anti-democratic shenanigans. 
First, they jacked up the required majority to pass resolutions from 75% to 90%. And then they engaged in smear tactics against the pro-demands organizers, and they shut down their internet presence, and they even tried to physically disrupt their efforts. Ironically, the organizers were so wrapped up in their identities as anarchists that they ended up betraying the actual values of anarchism, democracy, and horizontalism. And instead, they acted like a, quote, vanguard party, in the words of one of the pro-demands organizers. And you can read all about this stuff in an essay by sociologist and Occupy participant Susan Kang called Demands for the 99%, which I'll link to in the show notes. And so, no demands were made. And as a result, when the protests were eventually crushed, which anyone could have predicted, especially given that the movement was bound to lose energy without any accomplishments to keep it going, the movement had absolutely nothing to show for it at the end of the day. And the most damaging consequence of Occupy's no-demands whimpering belly flop is that it taught hundreds of millions and maybe billions of sympathizers around the world that organizing and mass mobilization are a waste of time, a juvenile exercise in blowing steam for college kids. You organize a zillion people, you get the world on your side, but who cares? Because nothing happens. Nothing changes. Like nothing ever changes. There's no point in even trying. While on one hand, interest in socialism had revived because of Occupy, which is one of Occupy's big successes, on the other hand, the anarchist and libertarian socialist varieties favored by the organizers lost an enormous amount of prestige and have faded in importance and relevance. To young people today who are facing increasingly grim futures and want results and real change, Lenin and increasingly Stalin are looked up to as models of people who know how to actually take power, as people look for mighty superheroes and vanguard ninja parties to rescue them. And so, the reason that I'm covering the dawn of everything is not just because David Graeber was a great anthropologist, but more importantly, because he was also an important activist who has many admirers and followers. And this book will have a tremendous influence on these people and on our movements and political imaginations going forward. Much like Occupy Wall Street, the dawn of everything is a savant idiot mix of dazzling success and ridiculous failure. It's a great success in that it puts some of the most important questions and issues of our age into public discourse maybe for the first time. How did we get stuck in these awful dominance hierarchies that are destroying our planet and our souls, and what can we do about it? And it directs us to look for those answers in anthropology, which is something that political theorists rarely think about or know about. And that's another testament to the poverty of our political culture, because you simply cannot understand politics without understanding anthropology. So this is a huge achievement. But, much like Occupy Wall Street and like the Peasants' Revolt of 1381, the book self-destructs because of some really foolish theoretical confusion and nonsense that renders the authors completely incapable of answering their own questions, even though the answers are staring them directly in their faces, in the form of all of the amazing anthropological and archaeological and historical facts and anecdotes that comprise the book. And like Occupy or the 1381 Revolt, this gaping theoretical blind spot will set up readers for profound political failure and wasted opportunities if the incoherent message of this book is taken at face value. So, what is the message of this book, and why do I think that it's such a poison pill? The authors make all sorts of claims, but ultimately, everything they discuss in this 700-plus page book is geared towards one half-baked message— Human beings consciously choose our own social structures. Whether we live in a hierarchy with kings and patriarchy and serfs and slaves, or an egalitarian hunter-gatherer band with no authority figures and with gender equality, the form of our society and our social institutions is, and always has been, ultimately a matter of choice. 
And because it's a matter of choice, we can today choose a different path than the one we're on now if we set our minds to it. The main obstacle is simply that something somewhere along the way went wrong and we got confused and we've forgotten that we have that choice. I say that this message is half-baked because what does it even mean to choose a social structure when different people have different ideas and conflicting interests? Do women in traditional patriarchal societies choose to be second-class humans and to subject themselves to abuse and rape and servitude? When people have different interests, why do some people get their way and other people don't? What is it that gives men the advantage that they need in order to impose second-class status onto women in a patriarchal society? None of these questions or concepts ever arise in this book. The authors correctly point out that mode of subsistence categories like hunting and gathering and farming don't in and of themselves determine social structure. But then, why do we see the same patterns over and over again all over the world and across time? Why are the exceptions that the authors spend almost 100% of the book focusing on so exceptional? They have nothing to say about this. Everything you know is wrong, but there's nothing to replace it with. And nothing happens for any reasons besides magical choice, which doesn't really mean anything. Now, review after review of this book talks about how liberating it is to be free of the shackles of the conventional narratives about how social structure is a function of practical conditions that we find ourselves in. But there are two problems with this. For one thing, as we'll see shortly, Graeber and Wengro don't actually debunk the conventional narrative about social structure. They never even articulate it. And more importantly, believing nonsense that isn't true is not liberating, it's delusional and potentially fatal. It's liberating in the same sense that smoking crack is liberating. It's a mindless rush that doesn't give you any tools except for false confidence. Like if I tell you, stop limiting yourself to the conventional narrative about how we've been confined by gravity to be stuck on the ground. Flying is a choice. And I actually had a friend who literally tried to argue this with me once. Smokey D, I'm talking to you. Now, that might sound like a liberating message if you're high, and my friend is called Smokey D because he smokes Pineapple Express amounts of weed. But if you take that idea seriously and you act on it, you will jump out the window and fall to your death. This is barely an exaggeration of what this book is telling us to do. After a roller coaster of 700 pages of fascinating facts and anecdotes from a dizzying array of fields, the authors have no answers for us as to their main thesis question of how we got stuck in these awful hierarchies for the past several thousand years, besides the notion that it's all in our minds. Revolution is possible. How? Why? I don't know. Don't think about it. Just do it. The window's right there. It's all written with such charisma and optimism and breadth of scope that it's easy to miss how incoherent so much of it is unless you have some expertise in the subjects that they're talking about, in which case you see how so much of it is so incoherent that it's not even wrong, it's just nonsense. It reminds me of the movie Billy Madison, featuring Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts alumnus Adam Sandler. Billy Madison is a 28-year-old man who needs to redo elementary school and high school over the course of a few months in order to prove to his dad that he deserves his inheritance. And in one scene that reminds me of the dawn of everything, Billy has to do a Jeopardy-style quiz show contest to test everything that he's learned. And then when he gets a difficult question about literature and the Industrial Revolution, it seems like all hope is lost. But then, he brilliantly synthesizes everything he learned during the course of the film, from his kindergarten class, where he read The Little Puppy That Could, through grade 12 biology, all into a wonderful, funny, inspiring, triumphant narrative. And then the whole audience jumps up and gives him a roaring standing ovation. And when the applause dies down, the principal gives his evaluation. 
What you've said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. Now, what I want to do with this book review is turn nonsense into sense by filling in the gaps of this book with all of the things that Graeber and Wengro neglected to mention that we need to know about if we want to understand how social structure works and how it can be changed. Instead of telling you, yes, we can fly, it's our choice to defy gravity. Here's a sweet window. Go for it. I'm going to say, yes, we can fly, but first we need to build airplanes. So where Graeber and Wengro are telling us that we can just change our social structure, but they don't have the slightest clue how, what I'm going to do is tell you, yes, we can change our social structure, but here are the principles and ingredients of hierarchy or equality. Here are the constraints and the limits that incentivize one or the other. Here is why some societies have male dominance and others don't. Here's why some societies have authority figures and others don't. Here is why some societies shift back and forth from more hierarchy to more equality in different seasons. And here's what we can learn from all this to apply to our current situation. So let's get into the actual text of chapter one. The authors begin by telling us that most people don't think about the broad sweep of human history very much. But when we do, quote, It's usually when reflecting on why the world seems to be in such a mess, and why human beings so often treat each other badly. The reasons for war, greed, exploitation, systematic indifference to others' suffering. Were we always like that, or did something at some point go terribly wrong? Unquote. And according to the authors, there are two standard answers to this which have been with us since the Enlightenment, if not since biblical times. One of these answers, famously articulated by Thomas Hobbes, basically says that people are inherently selfish and operate mostly based on self-interest, and this is why we need authority figures and police and coercion to keep us from killing and destroying each other. And the other answer, articulated by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, tells us that people are innately altruistic and cooperative, but it's the coercive institutions of civilization, like authority and private property, that corrupt us and pit us against each other, turning us into selfish brutes. These stories have been with us since the Enlightenment, and they have roots in biblical times, the idea of original sin, or the fall from Eden, but they have modern equivalents. So you have people like Steven Pinker, who's the quintessential modern Hobbesian, according to the authors, who argues in his book The Better Angels of Our Nature that human history and prehistory was just one big giant murder-starvation festival until the structures and institutions of modern, liberal, representative, democratic market civilization finally allowed us to have order and prosperity. And then you have the modern versions of Rousseau, and they cite Jared Diamond and Francis Fukuyama as examples, who in their recent books both state that human beings started out as egalitarian hunter-gatherers and then ended up in different forms of hierarchy after the advent of farming and private property. And surprisingly, the authors argue that both these modern Hobbes and Rousseau versions are extremely depressing and pessimistic. The Hobbes version is pessimistic for obvious reasons, because it assumes that we're selfish to the core. But the authors also see the Rousseau version as being pessimistic, even though it says that humans have an egalitarian, altruistic nature, best suited to freedom, direct democracy, and cooperation. Because according to the authors, this idea is mostly deployed to tell us that equality and freedom are nice and all, but that is only possible for people who live in tiny hunter-gatherer bands, such that, quote, while the system we live under might be unjust, the most we can realistically aim for is a modest bit of tinkering. And they go on to tell us that the term 
inequality is kind of like a conspiracy to erase class power and to make us focus on abstractions, which is basically the opposite of the truth, which I talk about at length in my critique of the conclusion of chapter two of Dawn of Everything. Thankfully, they tell us, both these stories are wrong, and instead, they're going to tell us a hopeful story that gives us back our agency, and that makes the type of society that we live in ultimately a matter of choice. Now, there are a few things that we need to understand here in order to put these assertions into context. First, as regards human nature, no one with any expertise in the relevant subjects believes in either the Rousseau or Hobbes good versus evil versions of human nature anymore. These debates were happening until into the 90s. But by now, the general picture that comes from decades of psychology experiments and anthropology and archaeology is that, surprise, surprise, people are both innately selfish and altruistic though there are still some very interesting debates on the nature of altruism, which is a debate for another episode. Now, when it comes to theories about the origins of inequality and hierarchy, the picture is different. The Steven Pinker Hobbesian idea of prehistory consisting of constantly warring tribes being so innately selfish that we've always needed alpha male authority figures to dominate us since the beginning of time, that's an idea that a majority of ordinary people living in our capitalist realist hellscape might believe, but almost zero people with any expertise in anthropology or archaeology believe or have believed this since the 1970s. The fact that an author with so much prestige and access to resources as Steven Pinker can be repeating debunked ideas from the 1950s should be extremely embarrassing to him and to his publishers. Meanwhile, the Rousseauianish idea about humans originating as egalitarian hunter-gatherers for 95% of our existence, and then shifting towards more and more hierarchy after the advent of agriculture, has been, and still is, the majority, almost consensus view among anthropologists, and has been since the late 1960s, after the man the hunter conference that I talked about when I covered the conclusion of chapter 2 of the book. Graeber and Wengro tell us that when it comes to cherry-picking anthropological case studies and putting them forward as representatives of our contemporary ancestors, that is, as models for what humans might have been like in a state of nature, those working in the tradition of Rousseau tend to prefer African foragers like the Hadza, the Pygmies, or the Kung. Those who follow Hobbes prefer the Yanomami." Unquote. But what they don't tell us is that most anthropologists think that most of us probably resembled something like the egalitarian Hadza, or Pygmies, or Kung, while none of them think that we were like the male-dominated, endlessly feuding Yanomami. Why is that? We'll see in a few minutes. Now the next thing to understand when you're reading this book is that the narrative that Graeber and Wengro spend the early chapters in the book pretending to debunk isn't actually a narrative that anyone with any expertise really believes. It's a deliberate, convenient oversimplification of a much more complicated picture that has all sorts of interesting exceptions and reversals and timelines that are just too complicated to explain in a short article or even in a book that isn't specifically about the Paleolithic or about the origins of inequality. And the people that they keep referring to, Francis Fukuyama, Noah Harari, Steven Pinker, or even Jared Diamond, these people aren't experts in the relevant subjects to human origins. They're popular writers with expertise in other fields who use the elevator pitch version of the conventional narrative of human origins in order to make points about other things. It's like if I wrote a book about how the conventional narrative about the four seasons is wrong, and I say things like, experts like Big Bird and Elmo and Dora the Explorer will have us believe that there are only four seasons. First, the story goes, you have summer, which is warm and sunny. And then you have fall, which is cold and rainy. And then you have winter, which is even more cold and snowy. And then comes spring, where it warms up and rains so that March showers bring May flowers, and the cycle starts anew. 
But is it realistic to assume that the same four seasons happen like this every year for millions of years? Well, the evidence shows the opposite. Summer is supposed to be sunny, but last year it rained 20 times. And winter? Yeah, right. In Arizona, there's never even any snow at all. And it's sunny all year round in the Arabian Desert. Yet Muppets still cling to this fantasy of snowy winters with Rudolph and Prancer and Santa. Oh, and in India, they only have two seasons. And in Australia, it's summer in December. Maybe it's about time we do away with this whole mythology about seasons entirely. Weather is a choice. Are you guys having fun yet? Because I'm having fun. In Graeber and Wangro's own words, quote, We should be clear here. Social theory always, necessarily, involves a bit of simplification. Social theory is largely a game of make-believe in which we pretend, just for the sake of argument, that there's just one thing going on. Essentially, we reduce everything to a cartoon so as to be able to detect patterns that would be otherwise invisible. As a result, all real progress in social science has been rooted in the courage to say things that are, in the final analysis, slightly ridiculous. The works of Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, or Claude Lévi-Strauss being only particularly salient cases in point. One must simplify the world in order to discover something new about it. The problem comes when, long after the discovery has been made, people continue to simplify." Unquote. But like any other experts, anthropologists only simplify when writing for popular audiences, just like any scientist or astronomer or doctor or mechanic. So Graeber and Wengro go around pretending that they're debunking the cartoon version of the standard narrative, but they never actually tell you what the full version of the narrative is, or why most anthropologists think that the cartoon version is still a pretty good elevator pitch despite all of the supposedly contradictory facts that comprise the dawn of everything. And in a few minutes, I'll explain to you what the consensus narrative actually is so that you can evaluate it for yourself against the supposed debunking of it. To be fair to Graeber and Wengro, while there are tons of articles discussing all of the exceptions to the summary narrative that they focus on, there aren't many expert writers integrating all of these facts into a nice grand narrative for public consumption. So writing a new revised grand narrative is fair game. And there is room given the facts to postulate that there was more hierarchy in the past than we currently think there was. But not for the reasons that Graeber and Wengro give us, because they don't actually give us any reasons. Their whole book is based on throwing out even the idea of having reasons for things. Everything is just magical choice and theater. Their words, not mine, which we'll see when we cover chapter 3 or 4. Compare the dawn of everything to a recent article by anthropologists Manvir Singh and Luke Glowacki, published in 2021. This article tries to argue many of the same things that Graeber and Wengro argue in their book mostly that there was a lot more diversity of social organization in the Paleolithic than the largely egalitarian portrait painted by the standard narrative. But in order to get to that hypothesis, Singh and Glowacki use the basic analytical tools that the standard narrative is based on, i.e. they work from the same assumptions about how the environment shapes social structure that everyone else works from. Now, I still disagree with Singh and Glowacki's interpretation of the facts, but reading it will not make you stupid the way that the dawn of everything will because Singh and Glowacki have a basic understanding of how social organization works, and Graeber and Wengro want to obscure that understanding in order to make everything look like it's some kind of random choice. The third thing to think about when reading this book is that when they tell us that, quote, Nowadays, the standard narrative is mostly deployed to convince us that while the system we live under might be unjust, the most we can realistically aim for is a bit of modest tinkering, unquote. That this is incredibly misleading. They quote Jared Diamond to the effect that you can't have a stateless society or direct democracy once you go above 10,000 people. Quote, 
As Diamond patiently explains to us, large populations can't function without leaders who make the decisions, executives who carry out the decisions, and bureaucrats who administer the decisions and laws. Alas for all you readers who are anarchists and dream of living without any state government. Those are the reasons why your dream is unrealistic. You'll have to find some tiny band or tribe willing to accept you, where no one is a stranger, and where kings, presidents, and bureaucrats are unnecessary. Unquote. But the authors don't mention all the expert anthropologists who think the exact opposite, that our egalitarian origins prove that we can and should organize in ways that maximize freedom and equality. And they don't mention that the people who argue this the most ardently tend to be the people who specialize in egalitarian hunter-gatherer bands and who know them the best. Whether you think it's correct or not, the story of humans as egalitarian hunter-gatherers who eventually got derailed into hierarchy and oppression by the advent of agriculture has been the narrative favored by basically every revolutionary-minded person with any interest in anthropology since Rousseau himself. From the anthropologist Lewis Henry Morgan in the 19th century, who influenced Marx and Engels, to hunter-gatherer experts like Leslie White, Eleanor Leacock, and Richard Lee, who were extensively in the 1970s to the 1990s, and Lee still writes today, down to the hunter-gatherer experts in the radical anthropology group, who are very active today, like Jerome Lewis, Camilla Power, Chris Knight, and Morna Finnegan. These are all people who thought and think that the proper form for industrial civilization is an adaptation of the same egalitarianism which we were born into as a species. It's what Marx called the riddle of history. The idea that humans evolved in and are thus best suited to a life of freedom and equality. And all of human history since we lost our freedom of equality has been a mess of people trying to regain their freedom at the expense of other people which is a hopeless and self-defeating endeavor, which can never bring peace or happiness, and that therefore the only solution is to go back to a life of freedom and equality, which the fruits of advanced civilization finally make possible for us to achieve once again. This version of the standard narrative is glaringly absent from the pages of Dawn of Everything. Now, as regards the fatalistic views of people like Jared Diamond and Harari and Fukuyama, like I talk about in my ongoing Class versus Culture series, every idea that's a threat to power whether it's socialism, anarchism, feminism, anti-racism, Christianity, you name it. These types of ideas will always end up being filtered through elite institutions and elite people into watered-down, defanged versions of themselves that support the existing power structure, or at least that don't threaten it. For example, the Care Bears version of Martin Luther King that we get on TV in high school history classes versus the real-life socialist one. By only pointing to people who use the standard narrative to resign us to hierarchy, while ignoring the history of that narrative as a force for equality, Graeber and Wengro are misleading us, while weakening their own arguments. So, back to the standard narrative. What is it? And do Graeber and Wengro disprove it? Do they even really disagree with it at the end of the day? According to the authors, quote, to give just a sense of how different the emerging picture is from the standard narrative, it's now clear that human societies before the advent of farming were not confined to small, egalitarian bands. On the contrary, the world of hunter-gatherers as it existed before the coming of agriculture was one of bold social experiments, resembling a carnival parade of political forms, far more than it does the drab abstractions of evolutionary theory. 
Agriculture did not mean the inception of private property, nor did it mark an irreversible step towards inequality. In fact, many of the first farming communities were relatively free of ranks and hierarchies. And far from setting class differences in stone, a surprising number of the world's earliest cities were organized on robustly egalitarian lines, with no need for authoritarian rulers, ambitious warrior politicians, or even bossy administrators. Unquote. Now, Nothing they're telling us here is new or controversial, besides the stuff about egalitarian cities. When you read anthropology articles about social organization in the Paleolithic, or the transition to agriculture, scholars routinely discuss all of this stuff, that there were sedentary and semi-sedentary hunter-gatherers in the Paleolithic, particularly in Europe in the Upper Paleolithic, and that the shift to hierarchy after agriculture didn't happen overnight. There were relatively egalitarian farming settlements at first that often lasted hundreds or even thousands of years. The progression from equality to hierarchy was slow and patchy, and although everyone agrees that agriculture led to increased hierarchy, different authors propose different theories and reasons for the extended timeline of that progression, none of which are articulated in this book despite lots and lots of pages and despite the relevance of those theories to the author's thesis. Later on in the book, Graeber and Wangaro actually admit that, okay, yeah, after agriculture became dominant, societies eventually did become more and more hierarchical, but they treat it like it must be a coincidence or something. It didn't happen overnight, so obviously agriculture doesn't lead to hierarchy. What is the relationship between agriculture and hierarchy? Or between population density and hierarchy? Or between mode of subsistence and social structure? They barely even look into it, never mind coming up with an answer. The story is different when it comes to the idea of egalitarian cities, which genuinely does seem to go against the standard narrative in archaeology. And if it's true that there were egalitarian cities, and I hope it's true, well then that has some really exciting implications. If it's true. I've already seen at least one reviewer pointing out a bunch of holes in Graeber and Wengo's presentation of that issue, but I don't have much to say about it one way or the other because I just don't have enough knowledge in that field. As much as I want to believe their stories about egalitarian cities, I am somewhat skeptical of whatever they say because of how badly they mangle those topics that I do know something about. Now, why has the dominant narrative for the past 60 years been that human beings started out as egalitarian hunter-gatherers and that the main impetus away from egalitarianism was agriculture? And what about all the examples that Graeber and Wengrow cite which seem to contradict this progression? First, we know that human beings started out as hunter-gatherers because all animals are basically hunter-gatherers. Hunting and gathering is usually defined as not doing agriculture. Evidence for farming as a means of subsistence only starts after we get into the Holocene geological era, which starts about 12,000 years ago. Though we do have some interesting evidence of failed experiments with subsistence farming going back to 23,000 years ago. There used to be a lot of debate about why farming only shows up after the Holocene begins, but it turns out that it's most likely because there just wasn't enough nitrogen in the soil to support sustained agriculture until the Holocene era. And then, once there was enough nitrogen, when hunter-gatherers in different places and times found themselves in conditions where hunting and gathering was no longer sustainable, and where there weren't unoccupied places left to migrate to, they now had the option to switch to agriculture instead of the previous options of going to war or dying of starvation. Now, why do we think that humans started out specifically as egalitarian hunter-gatherers? Most hunter-gatherers that we know about are more egalitarian than we are, but they still have various forms of inequality like gender inequality or gerontocracy, and some positions of limited authority, while some historical hunter-gatherers even had much more elaborate forms of hierarchy, with chiefs and nobility and slaves. Meanwhile, one subset of hunter-gatherer societies that we know of are extremely egalitarian and deliberately so. 
They have all sorts of institutions and practices to make sure that no one ever accumulates much more property or authority than anyone else. Men and women form gendered organizations to defend their interests and to make sure that the other gender never gets an upper hand. And they have no chiefs or authority figures. And even adults don't have that much authority over older children. As anthropologist Camilla Power articulated it recently, they're not just communists, but anarcho-communists. They have a strong sense of individuality and autonomy, coexisting with an equally strong social pressure to cooperate and share all of their property. Now, these are a minority of the hunter-gatherers that we know of. There are only about six groups of cultures which fall into that category historically, and they comprise maybe a couple of dozen different ethnic groups in total. The Hadza and the Savannas of eastern Tanzania, various Kalahari desert hunter-gatherer cultures, various Central African rainforest pygmy groups like the Mbudi, the Aka, and the Mbenjali, various South Indian mountain forest groups like the Nayaka, the Palian, and the Hill Pandaram, various Malaysian rainforest groups like the Batek and Penang, and the historical Montagnier Nascapi people in the coniferous forests of Quebec and Labrador, who were hunter-gatherers at the time of the Jesuit relations writings in the 1600s. So why do we think that most of our early ancestors were like this specific subset of egalitarian hunter-gatherers, rather than like all of the other less egalitarian hunter-gatherers that we know of? We think this because despite the fact that these egalitarian foragers live in all sorts of geographic areas on different continents, every single one of these cultures practices or practiced the same type of hunting and gathering economy, which happens to be the type of economy that we believe that most, but not all, of our ancestors practiced until the Holocene era and which may be all of our earliest ancestors practiced. And that type of economy is what anthropologist James Woodburn called an immediate return economy, where you hunt and gather, and then consume what you collected within a few days without processing it in any elaborate way. Why do we think that our ancestors were mostly immediate return foragers? And foragers just means hunter-gatherers. Again, most animals are basically immediate return foragers, and our closest relatives, bonobos, chimpanzees, and gorillas, certainly are. So it's pretty safe to assume that the first Homo sapiens were also immediate return foragers as well. And the further back in time we go, the less evidence we have, but most of the evidence that we do have shows that people in the Middle Paleolithic, which is where we become humans, seem to have been doing mostly nomadic big game hunting, much like those recent egalitarian hunter-gatherers do. We do have occasional sites that look like people in particular pockets may have been doing other kinds of hunting and gathering here and there. So we would assume that those exceptional societies might look like some of the other kinds of hunter-gatherer societies that we know about from recent times, who aren't always so egalitarian, and some of whom are decidedly hierarchical. To be fair, the record is sparse. There is definitely room for alternative scenarios. The problem is that Graeber and Wengro aren't just throwing out the standard scenario, they're also throwing out the analytical tools that people, like Singh and Glowacki for example, need in order to explain any kind of scenario at all. It's like when doctors disagree about what causes this or that illness. They still agree on the basics of biology and science. What Graeber and Wengro are doing is like if a doctor decides to reject medicine and science altogether because he believes that the current standard explanations for the cause of a particular disease is wrong. Graeber and Wengro tell us that, quote, It's bizarre to imagine that, say, during the roughly 10,000, some would say more like 20,000 years, in which people painted on the walls of Altamira, no one, not only in Altamira, but anywhere on Earth, experimented with alternate forms of social organization. What's the chance of that? Second of all, is not the capacity to experiment with different forms of social organization itself a quintessential part of what makes us human? That is, beings with a capacity for self-creation? Even freedom? Unquote. But no one says that everyone on Earth had the exact same form of social organization for all of that time. We all know about the exceptions. 
So congratulations to Greyburn Wangrove for winning an argument against Big Bird and Dora the Explorer. But if the people who lived around Altamira lived in similar conditions for all that time, then yes, we would actually expect them to have similar forms of social organization, even if they had different languages and identities and genes and other differences. And we'll see examples of this when we cover chapter 5 of the book. And this isn't because Paleolithic people didn't have any agency, or the ability to make choices, or because they were living in a state of childlike innocence, but precisely because they did have agency and the ability to make choices, and because they were just as savvy and stupid as we are. People in similar situations make similar choices over the long term, because that's what works. Something that never seems to have entered the minds of the authors is that a hierarchical social structure is rarely some kind of democratic choice. Rather, it's a matter of relative bargaining power. People have conflicting interests and desires, but certain conditions give certain people advantages such that some people get more of what they want than others do. If your livelihood depends on a specific territory, like it does for farmers or for fishing-based hunter-gatherers, then, if you and your allies can control the productive territory, then you have power over all those people who need the products of that territory to survive. Boom! Hierarchy. That's how capitalism works, or how any hierarchical system works. In other words, social structure is usually a reflection of the balance of powers in a given society. And the balance of powers is shaped by the environmental and practical conditions that people find themselves in that give some people advantages over others. Sometimes, social structure can be more of a democratic choice, involving trial and error. But people don't do those kinds of experiments for kicks, or as a BDSM bondage kink game, or because they have superhuman agency. We do it to solve problems, and people with similar problems in similar conditions end up coming up with similar solutions over time, because reality. Like people who are stuck together on plots of land for extended periods of time will often choose some kind of person to endow with a little bit of authority so that they can arbitrate disputes, which are much more frequent and hard to resolve when you're sedentary than if you can just go off and join another band whenever you get annoyed, or when you need a divorce like nomadic hunter-gatherers do. And theories around how we got stuck with more serious hierarchies over time all revolve around certain changes of conditions which gave people in those positions of weak authority leverage which turned it into stronger authority. Conditions. Another example of people making conscious choices in reaction to conditions is that when people come under frequent attack, they'll usually organize themselves around closely related males who grew up together and stayed together forming a tight team while their sisters will marry outside the group, and unrelated women will marry into the group from the outside. And this choice, called patrilocal residence, which we see all over the world among people faced with frequent attacks, for example, every single nomadic pastoralist society known to exist, or to ever have existed, organizes this way, because it's easy to steal animals from herds. When people organize this way for self-defense, it means that all the women end up coming from separate families and are socially isolated from each other, while all the men are close allies and can form a close coalition. And so, the unintended consequence of this is that it gives men political advantages that women don't have, which leads to varying degrees of patriarchy. And this is why every single nomadic pastoral society ever known to exist, from northern Scandinavia to the deserts of Arabia to the Mongolian steppe, have all been male-dominated. This is one of the best-known and easy-to-explain paths to male domination. But it's totally absent from the dawn of everything, because the authors don't want us to think about conditions. It's all just freedom and choice, like choosing which kind of shoes you're going to wear every day. Towards the end of the book, they even tell us that patriarchy might have started in Babylonian temples, which is the equivalent of saying that ancient aliens did it with the 2001 obelisk. It's pure nonsense. 
In the short term, people might make different choices in similar situations, but our range of choices is usually pretty limited. If you make a really bad choice in terms of defense or subsistence activity, and you stick with it, you're going to die out over the long term. This is what happened to the Greenland Vikings, whose farming-based economy was a bad fit for the climate of Greenland over the long term, versus the Greenland Inuit, who actually showed up in Greenland after the Vikings did, but who survive until today because their subsistence mode works in that environment. The Vikings had a choice, adopt the Inuit way of life, or leave, or die. And they left and they died. And if you don't die off, the chances are that over the generations, people with brains and ideas will consciously experiment their way into figuring out the most efficient solutions to the various problems that you face, i.e. the same solutions that other people figured out to those same problems around the world. But there's one important caveat to keep in mind, that you also have to take into consideration the inherent balance of power created by any given situation, which might result in less efficient choices that favor the class with the balance of power. That's why we're currently barreling towards climate destruction, seemingly unable to stop it, despite the will of the majority of the people in the world. Now, if we look at the paintings in Altamira, and at many other cave sites, what we see over that enormous time span is depictions of the types of things that immediate return hunter-gatherers are concerned with, like large game hunting. So maybe the people who used those caves actually did have similar social structures for all of that time. It would really just depend on the conditions in that area. And never mind the puny 10 to 20,000 years that separate the various paintings at Altamira. There's a site called Fulton's Rock in southern Africa that has paintings that are 250,000 years old that depict what looks like the very same Eland bull dance coming-of-age ritual that Kalahari desert foragers practice today. And I'll link to an article on that. Now, although Homo sapiens emerged 500 to 300,000 years ago, Graeber and Wengro only start their discussion in the book about 40,000 years ago which is the Upper Paleolithic, and their focus in that time period is almost entirely limited to Europe. Anthropologist Chris Knight jokingly titled his review of Dawn of Everything, The Tea Time of Everything, in reaction to this. The authors claim that they do this because there just isn't enough evidence before that period to say anything about human social organization. But that's just not true. You can read dozens of archaeology and anthropology papers that talk about social organization based on the economic activities of that period, but the authors don't want us to think about economic activity having anything to do with social organization, so they don't discuss any of it, not even to refute it. More likely, the real reason that they start at 40,000 years ago is because that's exactly when you start to see more evidence of diversity in foraging strategies and social organization that Graeber and Wengro want us to focus on in order to paint their image of a carnival of bold political experiments. But these examples are still few and far between, especially outside of Europe. So in Europe, we see some clear sedentary and semi-sedentary settlement patterns. And we also have evidence of a few sites with possible potential social hierarchy, versus in the Middle Paleolithic, where you mostly, but not exclusively, see evidence that suggests nomadic big game hunting all around. And another thing that the authors don't mention is that this supposed carnival of social experiments isn't just random social experiments for no reason. Culture is an adaptation to environment. That's why we have culture. That's how a super general jack-of-all-trades species like humans can survive all around the world. These are experiments in new subsistence strategies, which are adaptations to changing conditions. When nomadic big game hunting and gathering, which is one of the most efficient forms of subsistence, is no longer viable, people start focusing on other types of hunting and gathering practices, so-called intensification strategies, that are more work and less pleasant. Things like focusing on shellfish, or on smoking and storing meat or fish. And this often involves living in semi-sedentary or sedentary camps. 
And another intensification strategy is raiding and stealing from and killing other groups of people. And these changes in economic activities resulted in changes of the circumstances of people's lives. So focusing on shellfish and on fish leads to more sedentary camps. And these new conditions either caused new problems that needed new solutions, or they gave some people bargaining power advantages over other people, which is where hierarchy comes from. Europe in the Upper Paleolithic was a particularly difficult place to live, as this was the last glacial maximum, a time where ice sheets were extending deep into northern Europe down to modern Germany. There were only about 70,000 people on the whole continent, because means of subsistence were sparse. And at the same time, climate in the Pleistocene era was fluctuating very wildly and rapidly compared to today in the Holocene. So at certain times, things got warmer and territories opened up, and there were more animals to hunt and plants to live from, and populations grew. But then within a generation or two, things would quickly freeze up again, and you'd have the same or larger amount of people living in less plentiful environments, meaning that people had to adopt intensification strategies in order to survive. Now, some anthropologists from the beginning have argued that you can't extrapolate social structure into the Paleolithic because the conditions in the Paleolithic were very different from what they are today, or from what they were even at the time when Father Lejeune wrote about the Montagne Nescapi in the 1630s. So, for example, today's foragers are surrounded by non-foragers, and they're only limited to territories that farmers and pastoralists and civilizations don't want, or at least that they didn't want until recently, which is why most foragers are being wiped off the map and forced into wage labor and agriculture as we speak. Singh and Glowacki make all of these arguments in 2021, just like others have made since the late 1960s. But even though the world was certainly a very different place in the Paleolithic than it is today, other anthropologists argue that those specific conditions that promote egalitarian social structure, things like nomadism, the ability to leave and go off to another band if someone is bothering you, and the universal availability of lethal weapons, that these conditions also existed in the Paleolithic for most societies. Not only that, but Middle Paleolithic conditions in particular may have been even more favorable to egalitarianism, given that there was less population density and more available uninhabited territories to forage in, more places to emigrate to, less need for conflict or to resign yourself to intensification strategies in order to survive. Now when we get to farming, the conditions that we see in immediate return hunting societies, which equalize everyone's bargaining power, and which make egalitarianism the most stable choice, change and they change in ways that make hierarchy easier to impose while making equality harder and harder to maintain. If your economy is based on territory and you manage to monopolize access to that territory, then boom, you have power over others, i.e. hierarchy. And this is true for anyone, not just farmers, which is why we see so much hierarchy among hunter-gatherer societies whose economies are based on fishing territories, like the Pacific Northwest Coast peoples or the Calusa who lived in southern Florida. Once farming has been around long enough, and population densities in the surrounding areas increase such that there's less room to escape from people who dominate productive territories, we see completely different dynamics and social structures arising with more and more hierarchy. And Graeber and Wenger actually talk all about the right to escape over and over in this book, but they talk about it as if it's some kind of choice that you put in your constitution at some democratic occupy assembly that isn't being sabotaged by upper middle class rich kids, instead of as something that is determined by the facts around you. With all of this in mind, the reason that it's so idiotic for Steven Pinker to try to use the Yanomami or Otzi the Bogman to illustrate the conditions that we evolved in is that the Yanomami and Otzi were farmers, not foragers. The ways of life of the Yanomami or Otzi and the material conditions and constraints and incentives associated with them did not exist on planet Earth for the first several hundred thousand years of our existence. 
Now, the Yanomami example might not be useful in terms of understanding our origins, but it can teach us a lot about why some cultures are so violent, and why they get stuck in an endless cycle of wars and feuds, and why they have proud martial cultures, which is something that you see often among certain pastoralist and horticultural societies. Think of the ancient Hebrews, or the Bedouin, or ancient Sparta and Athens. And it's useful to contrast these examples with the dynamics of immediate return forager societies who rarely engage in any extended feuding or warfare at all. This stuff might be good to know if you want to establish a peaceful world. But instead of doing anything like that, Graeber and Wangro just try to argue that, according to one study, the Yanomami aren't actually all that violent relative to other Amerindian societies, which would probably come off as an insult to many Yanomami people. But this study isn't even named or listed anywhere in the book. The footnote for that passage just tells us a story about how the Yanomami like to sleep huddled together in groups, and basically the author's argument is that being snugly with your friends is incompatible with murdering your enemies. Which is not true. Something that's worth noting about the idea that human social structure is mostly a matter of choice is that if you take it to its logical conclusion, it ends up taking us to some very ugly places. Like if the traditional Haida of the Pacific Northwest coast had chiefs and nobility and commoners and used to have slaves, and the Nuer in Sudan have male dominance, but the Mbenjele are totally egalitarian and gender egalitarian, and if that's all just a matter of conscious choice, then that must mean that the Haida and the Nuer people are just choosing to be bad people, and the Hadza are just good people. Or maybe Lesse women are pathetic, because they choose extreme subservience instead of choosing equality the way their awesome Mbuti neighbors do. It's like in our society, when people say that if you're working at the cash at McDonald's, it must be because you're stupid and lazy and it's your choice. But if you're CEO of Raytheon, it's because you chose to be some kind of brilliant, hardworking genius, and you chose parents who could afford MBA school. It's ultimately right-wing thinking, thinking that justifies hierarchy. Obviously, that's the opposite of what Graeber and Wengro are trying to do, but again, their whole project is an incoherent, ill-conceived mess. And one of the reasons it upsets me so much is that on top of making us stupid, it's inadvertently giving right-wingers a bunch of rhetorical gifts, just like Occupy not making any demands was giving all of the banks and governments of the world a giant gift. If you shift the focus onto the conditions that shape our social structures and our choices, this implies a there-but-for-the-grace-of-God-go-I type of philosophy. Individuals are different, and we all have agency, but in similar conditions, given similar constraints, people will tend to make similar decisions, on average and in the long run, which is the scale of social structure formation. And if we look at things in this way, we'll spend less time judging people and more time trying to think about which are the conditions that lead to the crappy situation we are in, and how can we change them. Speaking of taking a right-wing turn, the authors are somehow shocked that many anthropologists on the left are pissed off at them for trying to get rid of the idea that humans have egalitarian origins. Quote, The first step towards a more accurate and hopeful picture of world history might be to abandon the Garden of Eden once and for all, and simply do away with the notion that for hundreds of thousands of years, everyone on earth shared the same idyllic form of social organization. Strangely enough, though, this is often seen as a reactionary move. So are you saying that true equality has never been achieved? That it's therefore impossible? It seems to us that such objections are both counterproductive and frankly unrealistic. Unquote. And when they say unrealistic, they mean the cartoon idea that everyone had the exact same social structure for 300,000 years, which no one believes. In their minds, they think that they're somehow giving us hope for the future. But I think they're actually making it harder for us to have hope by removing one of our most potent rhetorical weapons that we have in our arsenal. 
In my own experience talking to normal people, I've almost never met anyone who said anything like, yes, we did have egalitarian origins, and yes, we're best adapted to be free and equal, but alas, we can't go back to those days unless we go become hunter-gatherers again. Oh well. Most people have never heard of the idea that we had egalitarian origins. Most people think that it's against human nature to have equality, and that we're not even capable of it in the first place. What I do get all the time from regular people is, Freedom and equality are impossible. Inequality is the price of freedom, and equality can only come at the expense of losing your freedom. And when they tell me those things, and I say, Well, did you know that human beings started out living in egalitarian and free societies with no chiefs or male domination, and that we've lived that way for 95% of our existence? When I say that, they don't believe me. And then I tell them to look it up. And when they do, they're shocked. And it really makes them think, and it opens them up to a whole new world of ideas about what we are capable of as a species. But, since 2018, when Graeber and Wengro published their popular How to Change the Course of Human History article, which is like chapters 1 and 3 of The Dawn of Everything, since that time, now, when people tell me that human beings aren't capable of living in equality, and I reply about our egalitarian origins, now half the time people tell me, well... Even Graeber and Wengro, who are anarchists, debunked that idea. Gee, thanks, guys. Great work. Great job. And speaking of right-wing talking points, for some insane reason, or rather as a further testament to the poverty of political theory in our society, even among revolutionary-minded leftists, Graeber and Wengro explicitly decouple the idea of wealth inequality from power inequality in this book, starting with this little nugget in chapter 1. Quote, the ultimate question of human history, as we'll see, is not our equal access to material resources, land, calories, means of production, much though these things are obviously important, but our equal capacity to contribute to decisions about how to live together. Unquote. Hmm. Is there any relationship between equal access to resources and equality of decision-making power? You won't find out in this book. The authors continue. If our species' future now hinges on our capacity to create something different, say a system in which wealth cannot be freely transformed into power, or where some people are not told that their needs are unimportant, or that their lives have no intrinsic worth, then what ultimately matters is whether we can rediscover the freedoms that make us human in the first place. Unquote. So, the way that we're going to achieve freedom is by rediscovering our freedoms. Brilliant! Why does wealth so often translate into power, though? Don't ask Raber and Wengro. They don't know. They don't even look into it. Recently, David Wengro was on the Majority Report with Sam Sater, and he said, It's the mystery of capitalism. It's what Karl Marx was trying to figure out. What is this magical force by which just having more stuff than somebody else gets transformed into power? Yeah, poor old Karl Marx. He just could not figure out that control over the means of production is control over the people who depend on that production, i.e. Marxism 101. Newsflash! When you control the resources that other people need to live, then you control those people. Our entire society is based on that principle. Now, if you have more wealth than someone else, but you don't control the resources that they need to live, then you can't exert the same level of domination over them, but you can still influence them with gifts and bribes, and gifting and bribing other people to influence you, or advertisements. That's how wealth inequality translates into power. Unsurprisingly, the right wing loves this dawn of everything argument about wealth and power not being related. And already, a regular columnist on the UK Tory Home website has quoted that same section of the book favorably. Link in show notes. And I'm sure the right wing will also love the idea that hierarchy has been with us since our earliest days. 
great work, guys. And so, the big question is, why? Why do Graeber and Wengro choose to make arguments that any right-winger would be happy to cite? Why would Graeber and Wengro choose to stick to such an incoherent view of social structure and focus entirely on choice to the point of describing hierarchy as theater a bunch of times, as we'll see as we go along? Why do they focus on the fatalistic narratives of Yuval Harari and Francis Fukuyama and ignore the optimistic ones of the actual anthropologist experts and revolutionaries? Why are they able to dig up mountains and mountains of fascinating facts and anecdotes, but they can't seem to find one of the best-known Anthropology 101 causes of male dominance? Why do they throw away the analytical tools that they need in order to explain the phenomena that they're describing, and that we need in order to understand how to build egalitarian institutions in this hierarchical world? I can only guess, or maybe I can ask David Wengro, though I doubt he'd agree with the premise of the question, but it seems pretty clear that in Graeber and Wengro's minds, if human beings are in fact limited in our choices by practical and material conditions, then that means that we are in fact doomed to live in hierarchy because we live in civilization. Like deep down inside they're so afraid that Jared Diamond and Francis Fukuyama and Yuval Harari are right, that they don't want us to think about material conditions at all. It's kind of like not wanting to get a mole checked out because you're afraid it might be cancer. You might have the same fear, but fear not, because as we'll see in future episodes, we can't predict the future, but despite obvious reasons to be pessimistic, the material conditions of the advanced industrialized world that we live in today actually recreates a lot of the same conditions that make equality possible in immediate return hunter-gatherer societies in all sorts of interesting and key ways. And when we look at that, we'll see that the ingredients for a much more egalitarian and libertarian world are all there. It's just that our awareness hasn't caught up to it yet, which historically is often what it takes to set people in motion to make big changes, like we saw in episode 8. And what I want is that when that catalyst happens that triggers people into action, that our eyes will be on the prize and our heads will be filled with good ideas instead of half-baked nonsense so that we'll take actions that might actually bring us closer to our goals rather than flapping our arms as we fall out the window. But before then, I want to read a little part of this chapter that I really like. Towards the end of the chapter, they push back against the descriptions of the Yanomami's violent, despite what every single anthropologist who's ever spent time with them says, and despite what they themselves say about themselves. And they tell us the story of Helen Valero, a white woman who's kidnapped by the Yanomami when she was 12 or 13 years old in the 1930s. Quote, Pinker briefly cites the account Valero later gave of her own life, where she describes the brutality of a Yanomami raid. What he neglects to tell us is that in 1956, she abandoned the Yanomami to seek her natal family and live again in Western civilization. After a while, given the ability to make a fully informed decision, Helena Valero decided that she preferred life among the Yanomami and returned to live with them. Unquote. Now, this is true, but Graeber and Wengro neglect to mention that Valero's European family rejected her, so that she was totally isolated and living in hunger at a local mission, making Yanomami life with all its dangers a step up in many ways. But the authors then do accurately point out that for the first few centuries of the European and Native American encounter, people who had the choice and the experience with both European society and Amerindian societies preferred to be among Native Americans. And they pull out this amazing quote from Benjamin Franklin, written privately to a friend. Quote, 
When an Indian child has been brought up among us, taught our language, and habituated to our customs, yet if he goes to see his relations and make one Indian ramble with them, there is no persuading him ever to return. This is not natural merely as Indians, but as men. And this is plain from this. When white persons of either sex have been taken prisoner young by the Indians, and lived a while among them, though ransomed by their friends and treated well with all imaginable tenderness, in a short time they become disgusted with our manner of life, and they take the first opportunity of escaping again into the woods, from whence there is no reclaiming them. Unquote. And this is important not because we're interested in finger-wagging posturing of European so good, native so bad, wah, 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 but because it's a powerful example of how people prefer freedom, relative equality, and community to all the endless frustrations, humiliations, and sincerity and alienation of living in a highly stratified society, which we talk a bit more about when we discuss uh, chapter two of the book. So next time we'll be covering chapter 3, Unfreezing the Ice Age, where the authors try to prove that we didn't start out as egalitarian hunter-gatherers by ignoring the first 200,000 years of our existence. And then they try to tell us that social structure is not determined by material conditions by pointing to cultures that change their social structures every year with the seasons, as if changes of seasons were not material conditions. In the meantime, if you feel new creases forming in your formerly smooth brain because of this show and you want to support me, please subscribe to my Patreon. Making a show like this takes a lot of time and thought and reading and writing and wrong turns and startovers and editing, and I'm very slow at all of these things, so it takes me about two to six weeks full-time to produce one episode of this, in which time I'm not doing any work to earn a living, so I'm not earning a living, which is just brutal and not sustainable. Also, I don't monetize my channel, even though I'm eligible for it, because I don't want to gunk up your life with even more stupid advertisements than you're already subjected to. And I don't want to do paywalled content, because that defeats the whole purpose of doing a show geared at spreading knowledge and skills. So your subscriptions are not a purchase of commodities, they are solidarity payments. And you're making them because you can afford to, and because you want this show to keep going. And I charge per episode, not per month, because it takes so long to actually make one of these, and sometimes because I need to take breaks to earn a living, <laughs> and also just to chill out. And if you don't have any money to spare, do not feel guilty about it. But if you have the time or the chance, please share the show with other people and tell them about it, especially if you're in contact with any prominentish YouTube's personages or podcasters, and there's an episode that might be relevant to them, please share it with them. It seems like a boost from someone like that is the only way to grow your audience in this algorithm super saturated podcast landscape. And this is something that I discovered recently with force when St. Andrew boosted one of my episodes and doubled my viewers overnight after more than a year of just struggling in the wilderness. And please like and subscribe and also review the show on iTunes or Apple Music. It's really important and it really helps the show pop up more readily on searches. And contact me with any corrections or suggestions or comments at worldwidescroats at gmail.com or else in the comments on my YouTube videos. And I usually respond to those pretty quickly. And until next time, see ya!